Section 6 of The Prince and the Heretic by Marjorie Bowen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edith Kesrick of Southern Ohio. The Prince and the Heretic by Marjorie Bowen. Chapter 6 The Crystal Gazers When Dupre, the alchemist's crystal gazer and spirit raiser, heard that he was commanded to the lodging of the young counts of Nassau with the object of foretelling their future, he gave one of his usual whimsical smiles, as if he despised the credulity and curiosity of those who sought him, and proceeded to pack up his magic table. Vanderlinden who had found his colleague's spirits more tantalizing and vexing than helpful, tried to dissuade him from putting his powers to the proof before such reckless young cavaliers, who have no respect or taste for holy things, he said, and mean but mock and jest at the spirits. But the Frenchman was a mysterious creature given to whims and impulses and secretive ways, and wholly beyond the control of the alchemist who kept him for his undoubted gifts, but found him the most trying of companions and allies. On this occasion he made no answer to his master's protests, but continued his preparations. This is Count Adolphus, complained van der Linden. All the while Count Louis was at Dresden, he showed no wish to consult the spirits. This was quite true and the scant leisure allowed him by his brother's marriage negotiations had been employed in the more full-blooded amusement than that of spirit-raising. His eagerness for reckless adventure had, however, caused him to at once accede to his brother's suggestion that they should put to the test the powers of the elector's magician, as they called him. "'I hear the Prince of Orange will be present also,' said van der Linden, vexed and he is a great person, and not one to be lightly brought into affairs of this kind. Dupre gave no answer. His strange, dry, and rather impudent face was wrinkled with a smile. Well, you do it without my sanction, remarked van der Linden, who knew he could not control his unruly assistant, and, drawing his robes about him, he retired to his turret. Before he set out for the Count's house, Dupre, after his wont, looked up the careers of the personages who had called upon him in a great notebook which was always with him, and in which he had gathered details of all the notable people of Europe. Of the three brothers there was little to be said. They were too young to have had any career, and were merely great nobles, born and bred in the Reformed faith, all unmarried and residing in the ancestral castle at Dillenburg together with the youngest brother, Henry, and seven sisters, of whom one, Catherine, had recently married the Count of Schwarzenberg, who had been Louis's joint envoy at Dresden. Louis himself had lived largely at Brussels under the protection of his brother, and in an official position, despite his faith, under Philip's government. This was all there was to be said of these three, but William of Orange occupied a conspicuous and unique position, and had already had a career of exceptional brilliance. There was much about him in Dupre's notebooks. He seemed, indeed, fortune's favorite. Through the Nassaus he came of a family that was one of the most illustrious in Europe. One of their members had worn the imperial crown. 
the others as dukes of gelders had been sovereigns in the netherlands hundreds of years before the house of burgundy to whom philip owed his throne had ruled there engelbert of nassau had been one of the counsellors of charles the bold his eldest son had been the confidential friend of the great emperor charles v and had largely helped to place the imperial crown on the head of his master he had further increased the splendor of his house by a marriage with claude de chalon heiress of her brother philibert prince of orange his son rene de nassau chalon succeeded to the united possessions of nassau and orange and dying young and childless in the emperor's arms at the battle of st dizier bequeathed all these honors to his boy cousin william the present prince and eldest son of count william the younger brother of rene's father henry head of the branch of nassau dillenburg and of juliana of stolberg his wife the price of charles consent to rene's will was that the young heir to such power should be brought up a papist under his own eyes and to this his father though now a protestant had in the interests of his son consented and the young lutheran at the age of eleven was sent to the imperial court to be educated and trained he soon enjoyed a remarkable degree of favor with the emperor and at the age of seventeen was given the hand of anne daughter of maximilian van buren and the richest heiress in the netherlands soon afterwards being appointed over the heads of many tried and splendid soldiers commander-in-chief of the imperial forces on the frontier a post that he filled to the emperor's satisfaction he had been further distinguished by being the support of charles on the occasion of that monarch's flamboyant public abdication and by having been deputed to carry the imperial insignia to the new emperor ferdinand immediately upon the ascension of philip he had been employed by him to negotiate peace with france which was soon after signed and which he had conducted in a manner highly satisfactory to spain leaving the king considerably in his debt for the peace was a triumphant one for philip the prince had been selected with the duke of alva as one of the hostages given by spain to france and immediately upon his return from paris had strenuously supported the states in their demand for the removal of spanish troops from the netherlands thereby putting himself in sudden and unexpected opposition to philip from whom on that king's departure from the netherlands he had parted with considerable coolness he retained however the stadtholdership of three important provinces and remained a member of the state council who advised the regent lately the saxon marriage was supposed to have embittered his already strained relations with the king who had however recently given his consent to the match and even sent a sum of money to the regent to buy a ring for the bride he was believed to be estranged from the arbitrary and stern measures of the new cardinal and to favor the ancient liberties of the netherlands and tolerance for the heretics for the rest he was the most magnificent grandee in the low countries his splendid hospitality was famous his table renowned in europe his cooks coveted by philip who was a greater glutton than any man in his own kingdom his debts were supposed to be huge but there was never any stint in the lavish extravagance with which he kept up his princely residences and his fortune together with that left him by his first wife was known to be enormous his revenues were but one-third less than those the king drew from the netherlands as prince of orange he was a sovereign ruler 
owing allegiance to no one. His other titles were perhaps more numerous than those any noble in Europe could boast. As his father's heir, he was Count of Nassau and head of the Dillenburg branch of that ancient house. He was also Count of Katznellenbogen, Count of Brabant, Marquis of Tervier, Viscount of Antwerp, as heir to the Orange, Beau, and Chalon families. He claimed the Kingdom of Arles, the Dukedom of Gramine, three principalities, two margraveships, two viscountships, sixteen countships, more than fifty baronies, and three hundred lordships. And though most of these French titles were but shadowy honors, he drew a princely revenue from his estates in Franche-Comté, and his claim to the lands in Dauphine had been admitted. He also owned estates in Brabant, Luxembourg, and Flanders, and all the property of the Van Burens which his first wife had been able to leave him. He was a knight of the Golden Fleece, that sumptuous and princely order, a grandee of Spain, stadtholder of three provinces, a member of Margaret's council, and had been, until their withdrawal, commander with Lamoral Egmont, Prince of Graverne, of all Spanish troops in the Netherlands, as he had been commander-in-chief during the late war with France. Such was the outward history of the prince, who, though still in his first youth, was already so unusually distinguished both by his fortunes, his position, his magnificence, his charm. One of the great ones of the earth, remarked Dupre, carefully locking away the notebook after having committed to memory the leading points in William's career. The spirits did not always prove tractable, and when they were dumb, Dupre was always ready to satisfy the inquirer with a few judiciously vague replies of his own composition. He indeed cheated so often, so shamelessly, and so skillfully, that van der Linden had lately lost all faith in him, and for this reason alone had been reluctant that Dupre should experiment before the young princes. The alchemist, whose position under the elector was his sole revenue, was in constant fear of losing it through some trick or freakish jest on the part of his assistant. He made, however, no further attempt to interfere, knowing well enough that it was hopeless, and towards the appointed hour Dupre, with the two apprentices, sour at having been summoned early from the tourney, behind him carrying the magic table, went forth into the sunny, dusty streets filled with merry idle crowds in their best clothes most of whom were discussing the prowess of the elector at the jousts, his grace having held the field against all comers, and shivered the spears of many a famous knight. Reaching the Count's lodging, Dupre dismissed the two young men, and himself proceeded to unpack his table. The cavaliers had not yet returned from the tourney, but Dupre was served very civilly with wine and comfits. The room into which he had been admitted was a fairly small cabinet, panelled in dark oak and looking on the garden. It could be lit by a lamp depending by a copper chain from the centre of the ceiling. There was neither fireplace nor candle sconces. The furniture was composed merely of a few black chairs, a table, and an armoire. The spirit raiser declared himself satisfied with this chamber as the right setting for his experiment, as he modestly called it but he desired the servants to remove the armoire, lest he should be accused of having an accomplice within, it was large enough to hold a man, and also the table, as he wished to set up his own in place of it. 
When this was done, he asked them to take away all the chairs but five, one for himself and the others for the four princes. He also requested that the shutters should be closed, the lamp lit, and silence kept without during the experience, lest some unusual noise should fright or vex the spirits. His preparations being now complete, he set himself nicely to adjust the magic table in the interval of waiting. This table was a curious and precious object, and Dupre had carried it with him through many adventures and over the greater part of Europe. It was of sweet wood, three feet high and set on four legs, each of which was set on a seal of pure wax engraved with a mystical sign and the seven names of God, the whole put on a thick square of red and gold changeable silk. In the center of the table was another of the seals, larger and more deeply imprinted, and over this was a red silk cover with knots of gold at the four corners. In the center of this cloth was a large crystal ball, egg-shaped, and of a most special brightness. Dupre now wrote certain characters with sacred oil on the legs of the table, and all was complete. The spirit raiser, or squire as he had been called in England, was himself attired in a plain black coat and breeches with velvet half-socks of purple color, a plain band and a black skull-cap, an attire which he affected to give him an air of greater gravity. Soon after the appointed hour, laughter, the jingle of spurs, the clink of armor sounded without, and the young counts impetuously entered the apartment. William of Orange, to Dupre's secret satisfaction, was with his brothers, but Count John was missing. In his place was a youth still in dusty armor with a face fresh as a rose. Dupre knew him for Duke Christopher, son of the Elector Palatine, and as this substitution upset his calculations, he demanded why Count John had not come. "'He was afraid of the devil, Dominus,' replied the young duke as they all seated themselves, laughing, on the five chairs placed in a row ready for them. "'As to that,' replied Dupre coldly, "'I would have your grace know that I keep no such company. I associate with neither imps nor hellhounds, being no conjurer nor magician, as the vulgar may suppose, but a good mathematician, alchemist, and astrologer, which are noble sciences and have accomplished great marvels, as, notably, the brazen head of Albertus Magnus, which could speak, the sphere of Archimedes, the dove of Arhetus, and the wheel of Vulcan. And for myself I have seen clay birds that fly and iron insects that crawl. With that, he seated himself before the magic table, and the young princes, who had but a little while to spare before the evening festivities called them, besought him to hasten. The scryer looked at them over the crystal ball. They were pleasant to see in their youth, their splendor, their comeliness and gaiety, as princely and as fair a company as could well be brought together. All were in their light armor with silk scarves and jeweled chains and ladies' favors tied to their arms, save only William, who wore a suit of green cloth of gold with pearl embroidery on the sleeves, a scarf of violet, and a mantle of black velvet. He leaned forward, his elbow on his knee, his dark face in his fine hand, looking at the scryer. At his breast was a cluster of roses, and their perfume filled the small chamber. Oh, ye great ones, thought Dupre, 
What is before you but idleness, luxury, and pomp? Wherefore should you seek to know the future? Your ways are very clear set before you. He asked one to lower the lamp, and Adolphus rose and pulled the string. A dim but clear light now filled the chamber. I would have you notice, princely seigneurs, said Dupre, that I am not in communication with any but good angels. From the seven names of God proceed seven angels, and from each letter of their names proceed seven more angels. From the male letters, male angels. From the female letters, female angels. And they are unable to speak anything but the truth, coming as they do from God's footstool. They are to be regarded with awe, humility, and reverence. Which of them will come, I know not, but whoever it be, I beseech your friendly graces to observe a decent silence and a discreet behavior. He then set his elbows on the table, clasped his hands about his brow, and gazed into the crystal. At first he beheld nothing but the gold curtain which usually at first concealed the spirit world from his view, and this remained for a while until he was beginning to fear that the spirits would not come today, and that to satisfy these young men he must resort to trickery, which was dangerous, difficult, and fatiguing. Presently, however, the gold curtain was caught together and hurled into the center of the globe, which changed to a luminous color, like amber with the light behind it, and began to throb and pulse with radiance, so that Dupre looked into an immense distance of pure gold like the strongest sunshine, troubled by changing, moving forms which seemed to turn together, mingle, and then again separate. The globe itself gave forth a strong glow, which illuminated the head and face of the scryer as if he sat in front of a lamp and rendered pale by contrast the light hanging above him. Adolphus pointed out this mysterious light to the others, and they leant forward in tense silence. I see, said Dupre, two of the spirits, Volvangel and Kendrick. They are walking together, hand in hand. What is their appearance? asked Duke Christopher. Volvangel wears a black suit of tabinet, replied the scryer, a little sword and his hair falling down long, also slippers of a red color. The other angel is more fantastical and has a doublet of white satin cut into points below the belt and yellow hose. Methinks they lack dignity, said Count Louis, who had expected something more strange and awe-inspiring. Surely these are bad spirits or imps. They are good angels, replied Dupre coldly. The ill angels have but three letters in their names, but if your graces are not silent, these will not speak. At this the young knights forbore, and the scryer continued to gaze into the crystal, which now appeared a ball of fire. They speak, he said. They reprove the princely counts for playing with eternal mysteries in a spirit of lightness. Kendrick says, Is life so long that you can be so careless of time? Be careful in your comings and in your goings, lest you waste precious moments, and death come upon you unawares and snatch you away in your prime. Volvangel says, Why would you know the future? It is better not to draw the curtain. And now they fall to pieces as if they were of ashes, and there is no more of them. 
The globe was now radiating such intense light that though it was motionless, it appeared to spin in its place. Duke Christopher rose and put out the lamp, but the chamber remained lit with a delicate, soft and flickering glow. The scryer now appeared of an ashy paleness. Drops of sweat stood on his brow. His lips trembled. He spoke again in a hoarse and unnatural voice. Liliana has arisen. It is a female angel, very witty and wise. She is coming into the room. A broad beam of golden light projected from the globe and fell, like the vast blade of a sword, against the dimmer light of the chamber. It is Liliana, repeated the scryer. She runs about the room. There was a moment's utter silence. Then Adolphus unexpectedly cried out, I see her. She wears a gown of flowered tabinet and yellow hair rolled up in front and hanging long behind. That is she, said Dupre. She is standing now by the knee of his highness, and she bids him remember that the angels of God are more to be believed than any priest or pope. She fades, cried Adolphus. She changes into a wheel of fire. She breaks. She goes. She has returned to the crystal, said the scryer. She asks what you want of her. Let us know the future, said Count Louis. Let us know the fate of the four who sit here, not from wanton curiosity or irreverent meddling in matters beyond us, but that, with God's help, we may know how to shape our lives as becomes men and princes. She says, replied Dupre in the same tense tone, that it is best you should not know, but she can answer your questions, one question to each night. Adolphus spoke first. Shall I gain honor before I die? The answer is great honor. Who will our wives be? asked Duke Christopher. The answer is, all three shall die unwed. Louis of Nassau, almost as pale as the scryer, raised his fair face as he put his question, Will the house of Nassau endure or fall into decay? The answer is, This house will endure as long as there are princes on earth. William of Orange spoke now. It was the first word he had said since the scryer had commenced. What manner of death shall we die? Liliana says she may not tell, but that in the crystal will come visions. Enough, enough, cried Adolphus, rising. I will not meddle with these matters. But the others caught him back to his seat. Hear it to the end, said Louis. The strong beam had now disappeared from the globe, which burnt suddenly dim with a sullen fire that lit the red table cover and left the rest of the room in darkness. The scryer now seemed to be in a trance or swoon. He swayed to and fro the crystal. His face was blank as virgin paper, his eyes like glass. I see blood, he muttered. Nothing but blood and black horses and men. It is a battle. The sun is setting. Again the blood. There are four knights trampled under the horses. One is taken from the melee and his bones laid in holy ground. 
The other three disappear. There is a search for them. They are not found. They are all young. The blood and smoke clears. See trees. See an older man, worn, gray, murdered. There is great lamentation. And now the black curtain falls, falls. All the light in the globe went out, and the scryer dropped forward across the magic table. William sprang up, opened the door, and called for lights. A servant instantly brought a lamp. Louis and Christopher were calmly in their places, but Adolphus had his head bowed forward in his hands and was shuddering. Here, Jesus, I saw her, he murmured. A little maid... And is there bloody death for all of us? But William's serene laugh, the flood of light, the stir and move of ordinary things about them swept away the sense of dread and mystery. The scryer sighed, stirred from his stupor, and began packing up his appliances. He did not seem disposed to speak, and the knights did not urge it. They severally left to change their armor, on which still lay the dust of the tourney. The prince lingered last. He put a purse of dollars into Dupree's hand and thanked him courteously. Seigneur, said the scryer with emotion, I will tell no one, but I will tell you, who are a very prudent prince, that those knights I saw slain had the faces of your brothers, of Count Louis, Count Adolphus, and one who is not here, and Duke Christopher. And the murdered man, asked William, turning on him his powerful eyes. It was your highness, replied Dupre, bowing his head. All of us, said the prince lightly. Was it John you saw, or Henry, that third cavalier? It was not his grace, John, but the younger whom I have never seen. It was a fearful vision, said William. And maybe it was but some distempered fancy. Yet, he added with sudden gravity, If honor called, the house of Nassau would make even the sacrifice you saw prefigured. He smiled at the scryer in the fashion which made all men his friends, and hastened away to the festivals at the town hall. Again, the city belfries rocked with the ringing of the joy bells. Again, the summer night was lit with splendid illuminations, and all the sweet languor of this rich season of the year was blended with the magnificence of princely rejoicings. The young grandee crossing the town square lifted his eyes to the stars and gazed at those three which form a diamond sword in the heavens. End of section six.